This morning we're reading from Daniel 6, 1 through 28. Daniel and the lion's den. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over the whole him to set the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then the men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it is in the connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, sign the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast. According to the law of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, all the injunctions you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near the den, where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel! 
servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We've all seen those signs, haven't we? Under new management, you know, a store it passes ownership, and so they're going to continue selling mostly the same wares or doing what they've always done, but now they're under new management. And so it's, you know, maybe the promise of uh, better customer service or better attention and more attention from the employees. Babylon, as we open this chapter, is under new management. You know, we saw at the close of chapter 5 last week, um, it ended with these words from chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Babylon is now under new management. And we should start by asking the question, who is this new management that has been placed over Babylon? Who is this Darius? And that's actually a really interesting question because not only does secular history record that it was actually a king by the name of Cyrus the Great, who was the Medo-Persian king that oversaw the conquest of Babylon, but the Bible itself declares that Cyrus was the king of Medo-Persian Empire who conquered Babylon and was going to set people free. You know, the Lord had given words of prophecy to Isaiah in chapters 45 and 40 and 45 of his book, and the prophet Jeremiah in chapters 25 and 29, saying that one day a king would rise named Cyrus who would bring an end to the exile of his people. And the historical books of the Scripture affirm that this prophecy did exactly what was going to happen. Second Chronicles 36, verses 22 through 23 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is amongst you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So, friends, what's the point of this? The point is that secular history says it was Cyrus, king of Persia, who conquered Babylon and came into power. Biblical history says one day a king named Cyrus is going to rise up. He's going to end the exile. Biblical history records it was a king named Cyrus who rose up and ended the exile of his people. So who's this guy, Darius? Who's this guy, Darius, that we meet at the beginning of chapter 6 here? Well, there's a few options that people have, that scholars have proposed, and the two most likely is that Darius was simply a king, a ruler, who was appointed by Cyrus to rule over Babylon, since Babylon was actually a relatively small area in the entire vast Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 reads, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. That phrase, who was made king, it sounds like it might be an appointment. He was made king. Who was he made king by? Darius was made king by Cyrus. So that could be a possibility. But the other possibility, which might be more feasible, is that Darius was just another name for Cyrus. In that day and age, it wasn't uncommon for kings to be known by many names and also to even have throne names as they ruled particular areas. So as we heard Mary read for us, the concluding verse of this chapter, chapter 6, verse 28 says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And it's been argued that the Hebrew word that's used there and translated as and is actually explicative. It's explaining so that you could translate this as Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. So this Darius was either appointed by Cyrus to reign or was Cyrus himself. But one way or another, Babylon is under new management. But friends, under new management doesn't mean that things are going to change. In fact, things seem very much the same. And one of the things that is the same is Daniel. Friends, Daniel remains. The management has changed. The administrations have changed. The king has changed, but Daniel has remained. Do you you think about that? The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, these kings looked so unstoppable and so inevitable during their reign. And now they're gone. But Daniel, faithful to the Lord, remains. Now, friends, as we talk about this account, the thing that we need to recognize about Daniel is he does remain He's remained for a long time. If you look at most of our Bible storybooks or our coloring sheets that the kids probably have coloring today of Daniel in the lion's den, they usually picture Daniel as a young man. And friends, Daniel was brought into exile as a teenager. But by the time we reach these events of Daniel 6, Daniel was somewhere in his 80s or 90s. He was closer to our own Terry Hurlbut than Alexander McCafferty. In fact, I have, because I'm a pastor, I have a Daniel action figure, complete with lions, 
But this isn't Daniel, as Abigail keeps reminding me. The Daniel action figure is a young man. It's wrong. This is, as Abigail reminds me, this is actually Moses. But this looks more like Daniel. Because Daniel was a man, 80 or 90 years, and friends, he has served faithfully in these kingdoms, and he's outlasted them. Daniel remains. The management changes. The kingdoms rise and fall. But Daniel, faithful to God, remains unmoved. And to my more seasoned saints here at Chestnut Street, just a reminder that God was using Daniel well into his 90s. And friends, he's not done with any of you either. Now, if we take a note in this account, Babylon is under new management and Daniel remains, but friends, largely Babylon remains too. It may be under new management, but this is the same old Babylon. Friends, management and rulers may change dramatically, but the surrounding culture remained the same. I mean, this is a dramatic change of regime. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Nabonidus, the Chaldeans are gone, and an entirely different empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, is conquered. Darius is setting up a new administration, but yet we find it's largely the same type of culture that surrounds Daniel. Under new management, but the same old Babylon. Because, friends, cultures are rarely a reflection of just one leader. The management might change, but the same old Babylon remains. Cultures are greater than any single leader. And so Daniel chapter 6 opens and we find the same old kingdom of Babylon and friends, the same old battle is being fought. We've seen repeatedly through each one of these narratives in the first six chapters of Daniel, a battle is being fought. And it's not a battle between individuals. These are battles between kingdoms. Will the kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of God prevail? And right at the center of the battle, again, is our friend Daniel. Now, Darius is setting up his new administration. Where's Daniel find himself? At the top of the heap. Verse 3 tells us Darius was preparing to put Daniel over the whole kingdom. But what happens? Jealousy, suspicion, competition. And friends, note that the, the... Opposition doesn't come from the religious officials of Babylon, but from the government officials. Now, now remember, by this point in time, Daniel's been around for a long time. King Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So Daniel was actually the leading religious figure in Babylon at the time. And so that is exactly where these government officials aim their attack. Chapter 6, verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And church, this is still happening today. I mean, more and more we hear charges being drummed up that you can't be a good employee or a good business person and a faithful follower of God. More and more tests are being prescribed and demanded of those who would have us work and do business in this culture. Do you ascribe to this? Do you celebrate that? Did you avoid supporting the wrong candidates? Did you affirm the correct social creeds? Did you list the right pronouns? Did you speak the correct catchphrases? Do you fly all the right flags? Do you celebrate all the right events? Friends, 
if you try to practice your faith according to your convictions, you may find yourself like Daniel, entrapped. Entrapped by persons desperate to make themselves look like the good people and you look like the bad person. Hear that again, church. All of the tests that are set up to trap Daniel then and still trap the faithful today are set up by people who are trying to make themselves look like the good people and those who are faithful to God look like the bad people. In Daniel's day and in our day, all those tests are nothing more than self-serving, self-righteous, empty virtue signaling. Today, just as it was then, all of this is done by persons trying to get ahead in this world by any means they can. So this cabal of scheming governors and satraps appeal to the vanity of an insecure kid. Now, while it's not completely clear, it seems likely that the proposal they made about the prayers was that all prayers needed to go through Darius, not necessarily to Darius. That what they were actually proposing was that for 30 days, all prayers needed to go through him for 30 days. That the king would become the only conduit to the gods. Now, this makes sense politically because Darius is new. He's desperate to unite a conquered and fractured people behind his leadership. So you can understand, then, the appeal of such a move. Your devotion to the gods needs to go through me. I'm the mediator. What a way to consolidate power behind you. However, Daniel knows that there's no other way to God other than what God himself has made available. So Daniel continues as he always has, as we see in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Now, for those of you that have been studying the book of Daniel with us, you're already feeling it. You're like, wow, this has some similarities to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in chapter 3, doesn't it? But, you know, one striking difference between these two stories is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got in trouble for refusing to participate in the worship of a false god. Daniel's about to get in trouble for not being allowed to worship the true god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to participate in that which is wrong. Daniel refuses not to participate in that which is right. And he's going to get in trouble. But friends, Daniel is actually only doing what he's always done. He's habitually, regularly, faithfully worshiping and obeying the commands of the Lord. I mean, really, the most remarkable thing about Daniel's faithfulness is that it was unremarkable. He was just faithful. This was his habit. I mean, notice that Daniel's prayer in verse 10, friends, that's prayer, not protest. It says Daniel prayed as he had done previously. Daniel's prayer was a habit. This wasn't a protest or a political statement. Church, Daniel didn't go looking for trouble. He just faithfully did what he's always done, and trouble came looking for him. And church, we should learn for that because we're not supposed to be a bunch of culture warriors walking around with chips on our shoulder looking for a fight. But neither should we back down when the fight comes looking for us. But like Daniel, we should simply be known as practicing habits of faithfulness 
regardless of the circumstances and the consequences of remaining faithful. So what made Daniel's unspectacular life of obedience so spectacular was that he was consistent. He just kept doing it. Now consider, at this point in Daniel's long career, he knew that the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, that Judah's 70 years of exile were almost at an end because this king, Cyrus, had risen. So couldn't Daniel have just changed his behavior till Cyrus issued the decree that the exiles could return home? I mean, couldn't Daniel have just held out for 30 days until the time of this mandate had passed? Church, the world today is asking us the same question. I mean, can't you just bend on this moral issue? Can't you just remain silent on that moral issue? Why can't you just go with the flow on this social issue? Why, why do you try to stir up public trouble on that social question? Because, friends, no matter how big or little or long or short, compromise is compromise. I mean, husband, go home and try this one on your wife. Honey, while I remain completely yours for the next 30 days, I'm going to look at just a little bit of pornography each day. Or for the next 30 days, I'm going to do just a tiny little bit of flirting and texting with my coworker. That's not going to fly. And husbands, if that's not going to fly, if your wife's not going to buy that, why do we think God will? Why do we think God will? No matter how big or little, long or short, compromise is compromise. So what made Daniel's unspectacular life of obedience so spectacular was his consistent faithfulness to God, no matter the cost. There was no compromise. Now, now, we should just take a note here that the text tells us Daniel stopped three times a day, and when he prayed, he was always praying towards Jerusalem. You know, praying towards a religious location is a common practice even today. Muslims today perform salah five times a day, stopping to pray, always facing towards Mecca. And today, observant Jews still pray towards Jerusalem. When King Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he offered a great prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in that prayer, seven times he made the same petition to the Lord. And that petition was, listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Listen to the prayer that your servants offer toward this place. The temple was understood to be kind of like a conduit, like a divine cell tower, sending prayers to heaven. You know, I mean, and like you know with your cell phone, the best way to maintain a good signal is to make sure you have a view of the tower. So pray towards this place, and Lord, hear these prayers. Church, we no longer practice this today, not only because the temple's gone, but more importantly, friends, for us, the temple has been replaced. Jesus Christ is our temple. He's our conduit to God. Jesus is our temple, our conduit, our mediator. He stands between us and God. He makes possible a restored relationship to God. Jesus taught His followers, thus, when you pray, ask the Father, what? In my name. We pray towards Jesus. We pray through Jesus. And because of Jesus, we know that we are heard by God the Father. And so, friends, if you are here today and you are still trying to come to and contact God apart from Him who is the true temple, you can't. Are you living your life wondering, God, can you hear me now? 
Can you hear me now? Jesus is the way. The gospel, the good news is that in Christ, we are heard. And in Christ, we are saved. Daniel faithfully bows down, not towards the king, but towards Jerusalem three times a day, and he prays towards the ruins of the Lord's temple. Daniel's action does declare, O King Darius, I will not pray towards you. I will pray towards the Lord's temple in Jerusalem because no merely human king can be a conduit, a mediator between God and man. So Daniel continues to faithfully pray towards Jerusalem, which is what God had set up, had established for his people. And this again reveals the central idea of the drama, the central idea of all of the narratives in the first six chapters here of Daniel. Which kingdom is supreme? As we've said before, these first six chapters of the book, for as heroic as Daniel and his friends are in these accounts, Daniel is not the hero of these stories. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the hero of their story. God is the hero of every one of these accounts. The conflict at the forefront of all these accounts is not a conflict between individuals. This is a conflict between kingdoms. The kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of man. Which kingdom is ultimate? Now, in this narrative today, the text insists at least three times that the law of this kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, which Darius signed, can't be changed. But Daniel's actions here and God's response here says, Darius, your kingdom and your law, they can be changed. They will be changed and they will pass away. Because the Lord does not change and will not change. He's the unchanging, unyielding ancient of days. The kingdom of God is greater, realer, truer than any human kingdom and any human ruler. So Daniel's willing to go into the lion's den for the faith that he sees all the kingdoms of this world, they're going to ultimately fail. But he served a kingdom that will not fail. Friends, the lion's den is not a face-off between Daniel and his adversaries. The lion's den is a contest between God's kingdom and the kingdom of Babylon. Which kingdom is ultimate? Which kingdom will stand? And while this story answers that, friends, there's another account that answers it even more definitively. Which kingdom will last forever? Which kingdom will not pass away? The story of Daniel in the lion's den, friends, points us to a greater deliverance, a greater story, the story of Jesus in the lion's den. Friends, consider that no guilt could be found in Daniel, so traps had to be laid and questionable accusations brought. And in the same way, no guilt could be found in Jesus Christ, so false testimony had to be brought against him. Matthew 26, 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Friends, both Jesus and Daniel had pagan officials that were vainly fighting to get them freed. Daniel 6.14 tells us, Then King Darius, when he heard these words, was distressed. He set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. For Jesus, the pagan official Pilate, 
argued for him in Luke 23, verse 22. A third time, third time, Pilate said to the accusers, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Friends, both Jesus and Daniel were eventually thrown to the lions. Daniel, quite literally, but Jesus figuratively. You might remember from the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first verse of Psalm 22. He was expressing to those who watched, if you want to understand what's happening as I hang here on the cross, refer to Psalm 22, a psalm of suffering. And in Psalm 22, verse 13, the psalmist says of his adversaries, verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And in verse 21, the psalmist then prays, verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. Both Daniel and Jesus were cast to the lions. Both Daniel and Jesus had the mouth of the cave in which they were placed closed with a stone and sealed shut with an official seal. Daniel 6.17 The stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Jesus, Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 66 So they went and made Jesus' tomb secure by sealing it with a stone and setting a guard. Early in the morning, both Daniel and Jesus had friends come to the cave where they were. Daniel 6.19 Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And Matthew 28, verse 1 Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And friends, both Daniel and Jesus were freed from the agony of death because they were both found to be innocent. We need to linger on this point for just a moment. Daniel being cast into the lion's den was clearly not an execution, but it was a trial. It was clearly not an execution, it was a trial. Because friends, if this was actually just an execution, executions don't have time limits. If this was an execution, why didn't the king have to leave Daniel in the den until the lions ate him? This wasn't an execution. This was a trial. Ancient literature attests to this type of trial. If someone's guilt or innocence couldn't be definitively proven, then they, they might, for example, cast that person into a raging river on the assumption that if the individual drowned, it was God who sees everything causing the person to be executed. Whereas if the individual survived the river, it was God attesting to the person's innocence by sparing him from death. It was a trial. And friends, the lion's den was not an execution by a trial. Daniel was cast in the lion's den, and if the lion had consumed Daniel, that was God confirming the punishment. God was confirming Daniel is guilty and deserves this punishment. However, Daniel emerged alive from the trial. And that was attestation. That was God attesting to Daniel's innocence. Which is exactly what Daniel told the king when he came out of the den. Chapter 6, verse 22. My God sent His angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me. Why? Because I was found blameless before Him. And also before you, O King, have I done no harm. And church, this is important. 
Because understand that just as the lion's den was a trial proving Daniel's innocence and the truth of his words, then for Jesus of Nazareth, the den of death was not an execution, but a trial. Just as Daniel was cast into the lion's den, Jesus was cast into death's den. And if death had held on to him and consumed Jesus, that would have been God confirming the punishment, confirming, yes, he is guilty, he is a liar, he is not who he claimed to be. However, friends, death could not hold Jesus because Jesus was innocent. The Apostle Peter declares in Acts 20.24, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Church, it is not possible for death to hold on to an innocent man. The Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 15.56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And if Jesus truly had no sin, if he had perfectly obeyed the law, then death has no sting for him. It has no power over him. Death could not hold an innocent man. So just as Daniel emerging from the lion's den proved his innocence, friends, Jesus emerging from death's den proved his innocence and that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, our Savior. And church, we find that this Jesus who emerged from death's den is the one who King Darius celebrated when Daniel emerged from the lion's den. Seeing Daniel emerge, he didn't know that an even greater one would one day emerge from death's den. But yet Darius, never knowing the name of Jesus, celebrated Jesus at the end of this chapter. Daniel chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, Darius declares, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. Friends, Darius didn't know the name of Jesus. But as Daniel walked out of the den of lions, Darius celebrated the one who would one day walk out of death's den, victorious the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, to reign forever. Emerging unscathed from death's den, Jesus was declared innocent and he was declared Lord of all. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the good news that we come to the table to celebrate. We come to celebrate that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Innocent. Innocent of sin. If he suffered and died, it was not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. And friends, the one who saved Daniel from the den of lions is the one who rose victorious from death. He's the one who will now save you from the den of death. He's the God, the God who delivered Daniel from the bite of the lion is the God who will deliver us from death's sting. And friends, while every other human kingdom and power will one day pass away, the kingdom of God will never end. Friends, understand the kingdoms of this world that we face day after day after day. They are visible and they appear terrible and threatening. But the kingdoms of this world will one day pass away. And Daniel had the eyes to see the unseen, unchanging kingdom of God. 
Hebrews chapter 11 celebrates great men and women of the faith. And Hebrews 11.33 celebrates those who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Friends, Daniel's faith saw and he conquered the kingdom of Babylon and the mouths of lions were stopped because faith sees through the kingdoms of this world. It sees their thinness, their temporality, their empty bravado. The kingdoms of this world will pass away. Faith sees what's real and true and eternal and faith lives accordingly. Just as Daniel did. And so, friends, as you look at this world and the kingdoms of this world and the powers of this world, what do you see? And for which kingdom will you live? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus Christ rose victorious over sin and death and hell. Thank you that in his rising he was declared innocent, that he spoke the truth, and he has always spoken the truth. That he is who he claimed to be, the very Son of God who has come to save us. We thank you that death could not hold him, and because death could not hold him, death will not hold us. For he is the God who saves, the God who rescues, and to him, We owe all allegiance, all worship, and all praise, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.